Hey y'all, welcome to the Appalachian Overlook, a metaphorical ride up these winding mountain roads where we'll explore topics and questions about what it means to live a good life in Appalachia. My name is Sarah Saavedra and I'll be your host in these conversations airing here on 90.7 WEHC, the voice of Southwest Virginia, and also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I have a real treat for you today. We have an interview with Ronnie Lundy, a James Beard Foundation Book of the Year Award winner. Uh, Her latest book, Vittles, is an amazing book all about Southern and Appalachian food. She's also written shuck beans, stack cakes, and honest fried chicken. Her work has included not only food, but music and, you know, just really talking about the Appalachian region and uh, the hillbilly diaspora, as she calls it. Uh, She'll be joining us in Abingdon for a chef chat, which will be at the Barter Theater with Travis Milton and Ian Bowden, but also an amazing dinner, all sponsored by the Virginia Highlands Festival. So get your tickets for that, vahighlandsfestival.com. But in the meantime, please enjoy this amazing conversation we had. She is just so great. She's so engaging. You're just going to love what she has to say about traditions and sitting around the table, Appalachian food, and finding our place and really celebrating our culture. Well, I am so pleased to welcome Ronnie Lundy to the Appalachian Overlook. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, so you're a historian in many ways, right? Like chronicling not only the foodways of Appalachia um, and the South, but also methods, right, of growing, processing, eating. Um, how did you get here? <laughs> I was born here. <laughs> yeah. Well, but how did you get to telling yeah. that story? What compels you? Um, and to telling that story. Well, so first of all, I was born, uh, I was born mid-century, previous century, obviously, um, in Eastern Kentucky, uh, in Corbin. And my family was part of the Appalachian diaspora. We moved to Louisville, uh, so my father could work, but we kept going up home. And so my um, we would go to back to Corbin and to the region um, uh, in summers and on vacations. And our family also came and stayed with us. Um, uh, I always, uh, one of my things I always say about my upbringing is that my mother always had more beds in the house than there were people living there because we always <laughs> had someone to stay with us. Sure. And so my identity it, it, um, was strongly Appalachian. And growing up in the time that I did, I was also very, very conscious. I became very conscious of the stereotyping of Appalachians, particularly initially uh, and and continuing um, very much the negative stereotyping of Appalachians. But um, as I delved more and more into thinking about it and writing about it, I also began to understand that there was this sort of romanticism about Appalachia that was also, um, both of these things have kernels of truth in them, but copying into either of them wholesale um, is really, really a problem for the people of the region, for the policies in the region, um, for the ways that we're regarded as individuals, and also for the way that we regard our own work and and what we may and may not do with it. So uh, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about the fact that um, when I began my professional writing career, 
I worked primarily in the newspapers in Louisville writing about popular music at a time when um, the Amer what is now called the Americana music uh, culture was so vibrant. Uh, progressive bluegrass, um, Zydeco and Cajun music was being interpreted differently. Right. Um, uh, blues music was being pushed in different ways. So there was this tremendous opportunity to use music as a means of looking at culture and sort of expanding on culture, expanding the definitions and pushing against these stereotypes and both the negative and the romantic ones. Um, and um, I also, um, I, I spent my misspent youth years working, <laughs> working in literally working in the food industry. I was, uh, I worked in restaurants and uh, was fascinated by food, was able to um, cook in restaurants that had strong um, ethnic identities or that I was able to bring in my own Appalachian foodways and identities and create things. So food and music kind of became my territories. And um, as time went on, the very first book that I wrote was a cookbook was called Shuck Beans, Stack Cakes and Honest Fried Chicken, which <laughs> uh, I always like to point out, my amiable ex pointed out, can be sung to the tune of dim lights, thick smoke and loud, loud music, right? Perfect. So, yeah. so um, that book actually literally combined food and music as its subject. I interviewed musicians who I knew and had worked with about the foods that that represented home to them. And I ended up interviewing a lot of the musicians that I particularly liked who worked in this world of pushing the definitions of bluegrass and country music. And they introduced me to their parents without being intended to do this, it ended up being a narrative about the foodways of Appalachia, because once I got into it, my editor um, encouraged me to include the stories and recipes of my own family as well. And so it became this document that both recorded traditions and old ways. So it also kind of said, look, we're, we're, we're a lot cooler than you think we are. And we're not, um, we're not the people, look at the foodways and look at the music and see how we don't fit these definitions that have been imposed on us. And, and so I continued my research into food and foodways. Um, I published a book in 1998, nine, I think, called Butter Beans to Blackberries, which was one of the first books that that um, positioned Southern food to talk about the incredible variety of fruits and vegetables, particularly vegetables that we put on our tables that we grow and that we um, preserve and that we put on our tables. And um, Vittles, which is the last cookbook that I wrote, um, turned the focus very, very deeply into what it means to be Appalachian, what our history was through the lens of food and food waste, which opens up, uh, again, what it has been the accepted history. For instance, there's a, there's a, a very famous book I shall not name by <laughs> name shall not be spoken um, that 
posits a lot of its stereotyping, ne extremely negative stereotyping on the idea that we are almost uh, a monoculture descended from Scots Irish um, white settlers right. in the region, which totally ignores, first of all, the native, the huge Native American influence, which is so evident in our food ways. Uh, it, it completely erases the history of Black Appalachians, mm -hmm. which is so clear in the fact that the first African American cookbook published in the United States, Melinda R Russell's cookbook published in 1866 is also the first published text of Appalachian recipes that I or anyone has discovered so far. She was a free black woman who was um, uh, by virtue of widowhood, a single mother and a um, businesswoman supporting her family in the Appalachians in the mid 1800s with a boarding house and bakery who compiled her recipes beginning with salt rising bread containing some nearly a dozen gingerbread recipes, which are <laughs> very specific to uh, in, in the realm of early American cookbooks, there is, and foodways, there's a predominance of ginger bread and cookie and uh, cake recipes in the Appalachians because we were able to grow a form of wild native ginger here that people um, dried and used in their in their recipes. So, so you know, you look at food waste, and then you look at the two of the most distinctive, specific to Appalachian food preservation foods. Mm -hmm. One of which is shuck beans or leather breeches, and the other of which is either called pickle beans or uh, sour beans. Uh, and that also includes sour corn or pickle corn, which is fresh green beans and corn or and or corn uh, put up in a brine. Both of these methods are German and hark back to recipes that you can find um, getrockenbona, which okay. are dry. If you look that up, you will see various forms of dried beans, but one of them will be the very familiar string of green beans in their shells that are dried on a string and then reconstituted. And we call it chuck beans or, or leather bridges. That is German. Yeah. That was brought here by German settlers just as the process of putting um, pickle beans up was brought here by the Germans and corn was added to it as, as we do kraut, right? Yeah. All of these are very, I mean, crop is dispersed elsewhere, but to my knowledge, the green bean and the pickling of corn is only done in the Appalachians or sometimes by Appalachian people who have migrated in the diaspora um, somewhere else. Um, just like the plot hound, now that I have ceased and desisted <laughs> writing about the food and the music, I have... Um, actually opened a bookstore in Burnsville, North Carolina called Plothound Books. Oh, that, I um, love it. Yeah, and part of its mission is to carry uh, the books by people who continue to expand these definitions of what it means to be Appalachian, um, many of them through food, some of them through music, and uh, through extraordinary fiction and nonfiction. 
I, I mean, I, I just love it so much, but I, uh, you know, as someone who's sort of a transplant to Appalachia as a child of the eighties and nineties, you know, I grew up kind of lock key, you know, that whole right. um, thing, cooking food for myself. Nobody ever really teaching me. And it was a lot of boxes. And so when I looked for a place to belong, Tampa, Florida was not the place. And, and it right. led me to the search led me to Abingdon, which I now am just fully entrenched here. Um, the good and the bad and all of the in between it is home for us and for my kids. But I, I get to that and to say, as an outsider coming in, I feel like the evidence is very clear that Appalachia informs the broader culture in a lot more ways than Appalachia itself gives, gives itself credit for, you know, credit for and, and, or gets credit for. And I just think it's so important that you're telling those stories because stories are the way that we change people's minds. Do you agree? The facts and statistics don't work. The stories are are connecting uh, forces. Um, And it's, it's not just about changing other people's minds too. It is about restoring our stories for ourselves. You know, at one I will say that in the progression from when I began writing in the 1980s to the point where I finished Vittles in 2016, my writing progressed from being about wanting to get other people to understand who we were to wanting to speak authentically in my own voice and for my own people for our own sake. You know, Um, um, it, it, what I want is for us to recognize ourselves, who we are, and the tremendous um, strength and ingenuity and love that has allowed us to continue as a culture um, against tremendous forces that, that didn't care about us, that didn't care about our thriving, our existing. Yeah, yeah. I- I, um, I think it's so important to reclaim the stories and, and as you said, to speak authentically in your own voice. And that kind of takes some getting to know what, what your own voice is authentically, right. And not that narrative that we've been told, well, food, uh, food in particular. And I mean, music is this way also. It's I love that we're already combining them because to me, um, I definitely make the connection, but so particular with, uh, our memories, right. We remember the, the meal, the special meal, our mother cooked or our father cooked, or maybe our grandmother. Um, those are the things we kind of repeat in rituals. And as I mentioned before, I was someone without rituals who had to find a way to incorporate rituals into my life. Cause I realized how to me, how important they were to me. Do you feel like, um, there's a lot more folks out there like me, like in your talks and when you get to meet folks, people who are looking for rituals uh, to call their own in, yes. in the food atmosphere. Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, it, you know, this, that's interesting that you brought that up because um, there's a trio of books that I, were, that I wrote in the 1990s and um, the middle one is called The Festive Table and it, it is my forgotten book. Um, <laughs> But, um, but I really loved it. I really loved working on it. And it was in the mid 1990s. And the focus of it was to talk to people about how they were addressing food tradition, give them genuine resonance. Was it going back and reclaiming some forgotten piece of a tradition? Or was it refiguring a tradition to 
make it have more meaning for you. Um, and, and, and it was just a very interesting process. You know, I, I learned, I learned a lot about that. And then as I have continued in my work, yes, what I find is that in this generation, I think for, for people like my daughter who, who had some clear definitions for her of what her roots were and had some strong family traditions, it is important to her to continue certain ones of them as part of her identity and as part of my grandson's identity and as part of their family identity. There, there were, for a lot of kids in that generation, a lot of her friends who ate at our house were fascinated by things that they perceived as novel. The fact that we always sat down together to have a meal at least once a day you, in the evening sure. that we actually sure. sat and had an evening meal when many of them um, eating was a process of nourishing the body with something, but not nourishing the sense of community or family. And the table that I grew up at was not only a centering place for food, but it was very much a centering place for conversation and stories. My family conversed in stories. And, and so that was kind of how evolved. And I think that 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 is a natural, I, I think we probably have a genetic need, a biological need of some sort to gather around a central eating place. It would have been a fire earliest days. It would have been a hearth in later days. It would have been the kitchen you know, we still all gather in the kitchen. I mean, doesn't it crack you up, you know, that, that when you have uh, some sort of gathering or whatever, um, there's always a core group of people crammed into the hot, dirty, uh, (laughs) tiny kitchen, uh, talking and sharing stories that, I mean, this is just something that human beings do. And so, yeah, I think that even, even young people who didn't grow up necessarily in that, um, doing that gravitate to doing that there is a there is a need for that and so there is an ex and then there becomes an exploration of why do we do this why do i need this what is it that i crave what do what do the foods that i crave tell me about who i am as a person or where i came from or where i want to be you know, I th- really think that rituals, um, you know, sometimes have kind of a negative con- connotation, but just those traditions and that centering, like you said, centering around something that really helps us to kind of tap into what things mean to us and why they mean that. I think that's so important. Um, so upcoming, one of the reasons we've got you on the show upcoming, you've got a couple of events in Abingdon and I've already got my tickets. And, um, one of the things is, you know, Abingdon is known as the best small town food scene, whatever, four years in in a row, I think, or we're getting close to there. I think we're number one right now. The voting is happening, but, um, so we, we have plenty of good food. I can go out any night of the week, um, and different place every night of the week and have some really amazing examples of Southern food. Um, but what, what got me to get my tickets for this was that you would be narrating (laughs) and, and telling the stories, because for me, that's, 
such a different experience. It's not just eating the food um, and tasting the food, but it's knowing the food. And uh, one in particular I wanted to highlight was the chef chat that you'll be sort of moderating between Travis Milton and um, I think it's Ian Bowden um, at yes. the Barter Theater. So tell us a little bit, it's called, or an Appalachian Supper, broadening the story we've been given. What are we broadening? Tell us why, why we need that and what people can expect if they show up to that event. Sure. So, so what's interesting about this, uh, it, it, this actually ties into the conversation that we were just having, because these two chefs, um, uh, and, and I, I'm avoiding trying to say these two boys, these two men, uh, <laughs> who, who I just think the world of, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about Edward Lee, who is going to come in on um I think it's the next evening and cook with Ian and Travis at nice wonder. Um, um, anyway, uh, which, which they're going to let me narrate that too. Um, so, so yeah, it's going to be, um, I, I just love that there are people who invite me to come talk. I don't understand (laughs) it, Um, but so Travis is, um, from Southwest Virginia, born and raised and devoted, devoted to the region and devoted to its foodways. Both he and Ian Bowden are are trained in classical methods. Uh, They can go into any kitchen um, and, and, you know, they could go into a French, well, maybe not a French kitchen because the French are just not gonna let you in, but they could go (laughs) into a kitchen modeled on the French uh, hierarchical structure and they could perform there and they could create food there. But they have both chosen for very different reasons to explore the Appalachian food and food waste. And Travis's is that reclaiming the foods that he grew up with and that he loved and that he wants to put on the table in a heightened way so that people don't, that people don't continue to buy into the BS that goes back to the earliest days of saying all these people ate was corn pone and fatback. I mean, what did they think we did with the rest of the pig, right? And cornbread, which is sacred food, right, was only one piece of this extraordinary garden. And if we were going to live through the winters, you know, I'm, one, the way I describe Appalachian food is that, yes, it is a Southern food. And so it fits into the Southern larder. But what is the difference for Appalachia is that by uh, latitude, altitude, and topography, we have fierce winters and in order and shortened growing seasons. So if we were going to survive, we had to create these methods of preservation that, that were extraordinary before the time of canning, before we get into those mason jars. Right. We had to preserve meat and vegetables to last us through this winter. And in the process of doing so, we created some of the most extraordinary American foods, some of the most resonant and complexly flavored American foods in the, in the spectrum of food waste that, that were specific to Appalachia. We're right in the heart of the ham belt so that our cured pork not just country hams and not just bacon, but things like sock sausage and sausage that was put up in its own fat 
and and kept and preserved in that way. These things are specific to us and and have incredible taste and the beans that we've talked about, et cetera. So, so here are all these food ways that Travis is exploring. Then Ian Bowden is the person that you were just talking about yourself identifying with. He um, was born in Northern Virginia, came to Stanton, fell in love with a mountain girl, uh, Lily, who we all love and adore, and began wanting to establish his identity by bringing his more urban Jewish sensibility um, to the Appalachian region and discovering in that process, as he combined these things, he he discovered that there's actually a tradition of Jewish and Eastern European foods and food ways that are part of the Appalachian story. So again, he's not a stranger to this region. He may have thought he was a stranger in a strange land, but through his exploration of foods and what he's putting on the plate, he's discovering his connection, his into personal connections, not just through his wife, but through himself to this region. And so we're going to explore all of this in conversation and it's gonna be incredible. And we haven't even mentioned the Italians and we need to get them in there. <laughs> we haven't even mentioned the Spanish and we will bring them in there. It's gonna be, I mean, it's gonna be an amazing night of conversation and discovery just kind of um, explosions of flavor that will blow your mind about what you thought Appalachia meant and what it actually does represent and will continue to bring into the future in a vibrant way. I love that so much. Uh, what's next? You've got a bookstore coming up. Any new books on the horizon? I, my job, my purpose in life now is to nurture and bring to the fore the next generation of writers and farmers and chefs and historians and thinkers. I cannot wait to see what's next for Ronnie Lundy. I can't wait to go to that bookstore. If y'all know me, an independent bookstore is my jam, especially one that's lifting up Appalachian culture. So uh, don't forget to get your tickets via highlandsfestival.com for either the chef chat or that dinner or both. I think tickets may be sold out for the dinner, but that chef chat, you just heard how awesome it was to talk to Ronnie Lundy. Just imagine adding in a couple of chefs there and you've got a really great night in front of you. I couldn't leave without asking Ronnie which song she would like to choose. Of course, she was a music writer in the heyday of bluegrass, progressive bluegrass. And so let's play a John Hartford song. Uh, this is John Hartford and Leather Britches. Thanks, y'all. <laughs> 